Good morning, church. As ever, it's fantastic to see you. Um, it's great to see us all gathered here. Thank you for our worship so far. Thanks, Debbie, for holding us together and holding all these things together. Thank you, Judy, for sharing. Um, the Spirit's at work already. Let's just tap into that and listen to what the Spirit has to say to us this morning. Um, so... Uh, we're returning to Ephesians this morning. Um, thank you to everyone who's helped us to explore this so far. Um, we've made our way through to chapter four. Um, and, and we're now having a thought a lot about in those first few chapters, uh, Paul setting out a vision for a united church and how we're all together reconciled through Christ to God, our Father in heaven, where there was once one people of God, the, the people of God known as Israel, we are all now part of God's family. No longer are there any foreigners and strangers. No longer are there ins and outs. We are all fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. The Gentiles, so, so Gentiles is this, this, this catch-all phrase that we're very familiar with, but it just means everybody who's not us. It means everybody who's not looking like us, doing the same things as us, singing the same songs as us, wearing the same clothes as us, you know, all of that stuff. Everybody else is now part of the family. Everybody else now has equal access to God through what Jesus does on the cross for us. We are all heirs together, all of us with Israel. Now, when we hear this today, we can fall into the kind of mundanity of we've heard this so many times, but this is dangerous. This is radical teaching. Paul is risking his life saying these things. He's winding people up. He's upsetting them. He knows what he's doing. He's pulling things apart so that we end up with a, a greater understanding. This is why Paul, whenever he goes throughout his journeys, we, we talked about this. His strategy seems pretty clear. John and I were talking about whether Paul had a real strategy or not. I, I sit in the camp of thinking he probably knew what he was doing. I think John's a little bit more, yeah, he kind of makes the best of moments. But it's probably a bit of both. Uh, both. So Paul travels somewhere. He goes to the synagogue first. He teaches. He annoys everyone. He gets kicked out. That seems to be the pattern. Now, I'm not promising to do that this morning, but if you feel free to kick me out, please don't beat me, though. Uh, I, I'm not sure I can take that this morning. Um, but we have this idea that emerges from whenever he goes somewhere. He, he is opposed because he's pulling apart what people have believed for hundreds, if not thousands of years. He's tipping things upside down. He's throwing things away. He's, he's saying, look, there is so much more if we can push through what has once divided us. So we have this, uh, I've picked this out of chapter two, but it appears across all of Paul's letters really, this similar idea. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. This is dangerous, this is radical stuff. This is incredible, a society that was defined by whether you were a citizen of Rome, a Greek and a heir to, an heir to all of that tradition, whether you were one of God's chosen people, you were defined by your identity. Paul's saying, no, 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 you have a new identity in Christ. Your new experience, your foundation is no longer what you were, it is what you are, a child of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together 
to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What a ra- radical proposition. Paul is nibbling away at Jewish monotheism here. His teaching through the proclamation of Jesus as Lord, this Trinitarian thought that is emerging, these guys trying to make sense of what they've experienced, is dangerous. It's what leads him to almost be stoned to death. It's what leads him to be castigated and thrown out of every place he goes to when he tries to proclaim this good news. But not only that, but he's undermining Greco-Roman polytheism as well. He's, he's annoying everybody they comes into contact with. He is so certain of this message that he's willing to put his life on the line and say, Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is not just another great teacher, another great wise man. Jesus is Lord. This is the message that sits at the heart of everything that Paul does. And when he gets to Ephesus, he, he chips away, he chips away, he gets up, thrown out of the synagogue, he carries on teaching, and then he annoys the idol makers. He annoys people who make a huge amount of money out of this worship of Artemis. This is dangerous ground. It's radical. It's subversive. Paul is never afraid of challenging the status quo in his desire to bring the good news of Jesus to all. Chapter 4, as where we're picking up this morning, onwards sees Paul turn to the practicalities of this new community drawn together around the risen Lord recognising the huge steps forward this requires in the consciousness of anyone who's listening to him. The consciousness of those who have considered themselves as better than others or view Judaism with unveiled superstition as suspicion due to its bizarre monotheism. Not only is this a whole new way of thinking about God being proclaimed, but a whole new way of living, a turning upside down of the power structures that have sustained society for hundreds, if not thousands of years. All in this little letter, written a couple of thousand years ago, which still today has so much to teach us. If you want to go back and find out more, if you've missed what we've done so far, I can't recommend highly enough the work of the Bible Project. Their little videos are fantastic. This is their snapshot of the story. So please do go back and have a look at it because it's just amazing stuff. Paul is doing incredible stuff. Paul is setting the world on fire with this great message this great good message that Jesus is Lord and all are one. So let's turn to our first movement within this passage, the power of one. Just a reminder, we've talked about this previously. Ephesus is a port city. It's a gateway to the Royal Road. Now, the Royal Road doesn't start until Sardis. Let's see if I've got a little red dot. There we go. Sardis is about 120 kilometers away. So it's still a bit of a trek to get to the Royal Road. The Royal Road was built by the Persian emperors who wanted to connect the whole of their kingdom. A projection of power was, wherever you are, we're going to build a road. The Romans did this all over the place. We're going to civilise you. We're going to build a road so that you can never be that far away from our conquering armies. Don't mess with us. But it becomes the major trade route, and it still is a major trade route. In fact, if you're aware of how China is projecting its political power, they're kind of returning to this. They're rebuilding roads like this to project their power across the planet. So it's still an important way for people to connect with each other. This is a a cosmopolitan city, a a centre of worship of Artemis. And there's a thriving Jewish community there who, who we think have been around for about 300 years by the time that Paul arrives. This is a place that links west with east. It has a strong Jewish community. There's a whole host of competing identities and priorities, 
all of which find themselves present in the new church, Paul has made clear, we are now one body, one church. A, th- a theme beautifully articulated in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I've chosen this little bit because it's, it's a lovely snapshot of what Paul does all the way through his ministry. He's written it in Galatians and he echoes it everywhere else. This, this is dangerous stuff. This is radical stuff. This is world-changing stuff. You are no longer what you once categorized yourself as, as separated yourselves at. You are one in Jesus. You are one in Jesus. Once we've embraced Christ, we've found a new identity, one that unites us with all who call Christ Lord. Hence Paul's reminder in verse 4 that there's one body and one spirit and that we all have one hope. We were singing about that this morning. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus. Jesus' life, his death and resurrection are a once and for all act that brings liberation and transformation to the whole world. One Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You can hear him riffing here, can't you? You can imagine him standing there in front of a a congregation and giving it some of that Pentecostal fervor. We are one. We are one in and through God the Father who is above all and through all and in all. There's no insider, there's no outsider, no favourites. All are beloved, all are called, all are equipped. You see here, Paul is modeling, is calling the church in Ephesus to model something completely different to the world in which it finds itself. When membership of the right nationality, the right community, the right tribe, the right family could mean the difference between surviving or thriving. This upstart, ragtag bunch of Jesus followers that saw slaves and slave owners worshipping Jesus side by side, Jews and Gentiles sharing meals. Just think of the purity laws that says that. This is all wrong. What we've just done this morning for thousands of years would have divided people. But what we do here, what the church did at its very beginning, what Jesus called us to do around the table, flips everything upside down. And says, no longer are you divided. No longer are you separated. You are one through my body and through my blood. Males and females in leadership, radical stuff. Paul sometimes confuses us with some of the messages that we see throughout his letters. But if Paul's sending Phoebe to Rome with a message, he values women leaders. Trust us on that. This was something new, something groundbreaking, something beautiful, something that pointed to a greater power at work in the world than the narrow-minded bigotry that those first Christians would have experienced all around them. So, what does this tell us today? The church is called to model something to the rest of the world which seems to embrace division and the privileging of the individual above the needs of the society. 
identity politics. It's a tricky thing to get ourselves enmeshed in. It's, it's done so much for us to, to prioritize the voices of those who are oppressed, but it's also done much to divide us, to separate us, to pull us apart, creating narrower and narrower silos that just seem to bring more and more division. I don't know if you remember the Labour MP, Joe Cox. She famously said, we have far more in common with each other than the things that divide us. She was killed because she believed in a better society. An idea so dangerous that she lost her life to those who couldn't dream of a world in which all were valued, no matter what their origin. Is our church a place where we're living out Paul's call to be one? Not, not just pulling in the same direction with everyone always agreeing on everything. That's impossible. We know that. But instead, something far more radical, a place where differences are valued, where identities aren't ignored, but where despite these things, we can live together and love each other, valuing each other for what we can learn from each other's experiences, our different giftings, our callings, and contrasting ways of viewing the world. Remember here that Paul reminds us of the oil that holds us together, that oils us together as a church. In verses 2 and 3, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's hard, brothers and sisters. It's hard stuff sometimes. Holding ourselves together, modelling something different to our world. Putting others first sometimes. Listening to other ways of seeing the world sometimes. But it's worth it. When we come together, Jesus says to us in Matthew, when we come together, when the church stands for what it believes in, the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Let's move across into the second movement in this passage. Unity in diversity. Paul then pivots to help us to see how despite this call to unity, we're not diminished as individuals. This new identity found in Christ doesn't turn us into characterless drones with identikit appearances and thoughts. Instead, the Spirit works within us to beautifully amplify the giftings that we were each individually created with by our Father, who always had a bigger vision for our world than we could ever possibly imagine. This vision is church, fully alive, fully equipped. The church is called to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God, pockets of shalom. That shalom idea isn't just peace, it's everything the way it's meant to be. The kingdom of God here and now, a taste of the divine, a glimpse of heaven the presence of Christ here on earth, as we're called, as you, as I am called to be an active participant in the ministry and mission of God, not just holding on until Jesus returns or takes us home. Jesus has equipped the church with what it needs to fulfill this calling. He tells us again in Matthew, go and make disciples. He sends us. There's this outwards propulsion, all of us, all of us are equally valued as essential participants in the outworking of God's plan. 
The Spirit works within each of us to turn these gifts into something so much more than we could dream, glorifying God through service in and building up of the church. Verses 12 and 13, they will appear in just a moment. Through this, we all grow, we all benefit, we all experience life in all its fullness that Jesus promises in John 10.10. Membership of the church, membership of the body of Christ is not just sitting back on our backsides, thankful for the incredible work of grace that God has done within us. We are incredibly thankful for that work, don't get me wrong. We are saved, we are redeemed, we are restored, we are healed, we are forgiven, we are ransomed. All those wonderful theological ideas. This grace is incredible. We have been set afire by the word of God, absolutely. But we don't just sit there and say, thank you God, that's my golden ticket sorted. No, it's active participation. It's sleeves rolled up. It's willingness to be and do whatever it is that we've been equipped to do by the Spirit as we look to the future that God has in store for us as a community of Christ followers in this particular place, at this particular time. So here we are. For some reason, God has decided that we, you, me, us, are the way in which the great good news of Jesus' life, death and resurrection is spread. Go and make disciples. You, me, all of us equipped by the Spirit to take our roles in this living and breathing representation of Christ's body, utterly devoted to our God, utterly devoted to each other, and utterly devoted to sharing this good news with our neighbours as the greatest act of love that they could possibly imagine. When we are fully alive in the spirit, when we're all using the gifts poured out into our lives, the body of Christ becomes fully alive. Think about that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to flick to it, remember what Paul says to us. He riffs on these giftings all over the place. He believes that all of us are active participants in God's mission and ministry in the world. And he says, look, we've been all been given gifts. We're like a body with all these different body parts. But but if, if one part of that body thinks it's any more important than the other, then, then the whole thing becomes a mess. Imagine this, this eyeball thinking it's better than everyone else, it just rolling down the world road, being gloopy. And that's not Paul's words, by the way. I'm riffing a little bit. But every part of the body has its role to ful- fulfill. When we're all using the gifts poured out into our lives, the body of Christ becomes fully alive. The church needs apostles. It needs those who who are listening out to where God is leading us and chasing after what God is doing. It needs prophets, those who seem hot-wired into the spirit, who seem to be able to bring those messages, those pictures, those ideas direct from God, speaking wisdom to us, challenging us, filling us with further. It needs evangelists, those who can't keep this great good news to themselves, who who can't help but bubble over with the joy of what God is doing. It needs pastors, those who love and love and love and hold us all together. It needs teachers, those who seem to have the ability to take this word and help it make sense to us in our everyday moments. We need you, we need you, we need you, we need you fully alive in Christ. 
We need you fully alive in the spirit. Fully signed up to serving. Uh, a few months ago when I was hosting a, a service, I, I used the picture of a jigsaw. And I'd scattered out jigsaw pieces all over the place and invited people to find them and bring them together. A jigsaw piece with one piece missing is not the final picture. What is your jigsaw piece? What is the jigsaw piece that the Spirit has given you? It's like when we go to Ikea and we get that flat pack furniture which has completely changed our lives and there's one screw missing. <laughs> You've been there, brothers and sisters. Preach. If you don't have that screw, the whole thing doesn't work. I know I've offended a hard-working carpenter by talking about Ikea. <laughs> But without that screw, without that necessary piece of equipment, actually, I, I used to, um, my dad is, is really great at carpentry and joinery, but the number of times I was left standing up a ladder, holding up a roof joist, while he said, oh, hold on, I haven't got the screwdriver. Without the necessary, necessary kit, without everybody taking their part, without everybody fully alive in Christ. It just doesn't work. And finally, because we're in a World Cup year, it would be wrong not to use the image. Now, I, I was a defender. I was a right back. I was not the glamorous type. I wasn't even one of these flying wing backs that would fly up and kick balls into the box. I would stop at the halfway line and have a big breath of fresh air because <laughs> I would die if I went the whole way. But often we focus on the strikers, the glamour players, right? The guys who put the ball in the net, and they are important, but without the foundations of the rest of the team playing, the goalkeeper willing to do their bit, the defenders doing that unglamorous, heading the ball away and sticking their legs in when they need to, putting their bodies on the line, the goal scorer would never put the ball in the net. The whole team needed to get the score, to get the goal, to get the win. Paul ends this section Verse 16, by telling us that we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We are the body of Christ. You, me, us. All of us. Now, I, I never knew, I'm an RE teacher, so I've had to learn this, of course. But religion shares that root word with ligament. It's the thing that holds us together, the shared values, the shared beliefs, those ideas that, that hold us together, that despite the beautiful diversity of the body of Christ, despite the, as Debbie called us, the weirdness of us. As Dennis has said more than once, the chaotic beauty of this bunch of people that are church. We are held together by our love for Jesus, by the work that the Spirit is doing in us. We are one. We are called to serve the one who loves us, calls us, and equips us to serve others. This is radical. This is revolutionary. This is countercultural. I remember in my Sunday school, the primary at the Salvation Army in which I grew up in, one of our very favourite little choruses, and you probably know it. I'm not going to sing it because I'm not gay. Jesus first, yourselves last, and others in between. Do you remember that one? Jesus first. That root, that foundation, the thing that holds us together, driving us outwards into mission and ministry in the world. 
we're part of that. God has called us to that. The last little analogy I guess I want to leave with you is I am, I am a musician. I grew up again in the Salvation Army. I was taught to play a, a brass instrument from the age of six and to be as good at it as I could be. Um, so I learned my part diligently. I could play for several hours on end. I could do all the chromatic scales and my fingers could still operate automatically. It's still there, that knowledge. But when I was standing there playing my cornet on my own, I was just a racket. Now, I wish I was as gifted as Andy. Andy can pluck the tune as we go through a song. Yeah, he can. Um, and, and it is great. And, and you know, I've, I've been with Kay when she's been teaching choirs how to sing, and you give them that strong melody line, and it's beautiful. And when we sing in unison, it's amazing. It is absolutely incredible. But when we join together with others, when a unison becomes harmony, something greater emerges, something greater than our individual parts, something beautiful, something amazing emerges when we are fully alive in Christ, when we are fully alive in the spirit, when every member of the body is set afire and said, Lord, use me, whatever it is that you've poured out into my life. So, here we go. We're going to spend some time responding to this. Debbie's going to take over. Andy and Riley are going to come and lead us in worship. Um, I sent out to you this passage this week with some pointers, some ideas of what you might want to explore because I really think this is what the Spirit's saying to us as a church at the moment. That the Spirit wants all of us to be set afire, equipped, fully alive. And, and I know every time I stand up in front of you lot, it's terrifying because you are saints. You guys have been doing this for a lot longer than me, an awful lot of you. I'm a Johnny come lately, right? But I know the Spirit wants us to use those gifts, to bring them to the altar and say, this is my little, this is my loaf, this is my fish, and I'm giving it to you, Jesus. And Jesus, like he does with that feeding of the 5,000, takes something small and he does something miraculous with it, and he feeds and he feeds and he feeds and he uses that small gift and does incredible things. So it may well be that you know exactly what it is that the Spirit has put on your heart. And you've been doing it for years and years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for persevering, for keeping going, for using that gift faithfully. Thank you. It may well be that you've looked at yourself and said, no, 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 that's not me. I'm not one of these guys who can stand at the front and lead and do stuff. Trust me, I'm not one of those guys who can stand at the front and lead and do stuff. I, I'm terrified right now. I am the introverts of introverts. But somehow, God uses even me. So maybe it's a chance for you to, to, to look into yourself and think, well, okay, Spirit, I've felt you nudging for years. I've felt you saying to me for a long, long time, you want me to be doing this. Now, the list that we looked at, the apes, the, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, uh, pastors and teachers, that's, that's not the end of the story. It's just what Paul talks about here in Ephesians. There are loads of other gifts to explore. In many ways, it doesn't really matter what the gifting is. It's the willingness to say to the Spirit, come, dwell within, use me. It may well be that that that's the work that needs to happen this morning for you. For you to stand up, to put your hand up and say, Spirit of God, come. Come 
Show me what you want. I'm here. Ready to go. It may well be that actually it's about this kind of thing. That we as church are a wonderful bunch of diverse human beings held together in God's hands as one. It may well be that you need a little bit of that stuff from earlier on in verse 2 and 3 as I try and find it on my sheet. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Maybe it's that stuff. Maybe it's some oil that you need in your heart. Maybe it's that. We are one church, one fellowship, one family under one Lord. And yeah, we can't do this unless we're spirit-filled. Otherwise, as Paul talks about in... um, 1 Corinthians 13, where a clashing, resounding gong just making a heck of a lot of noise and not achieving very much at all. Filled with the Holy Spirit, filled and empowered and sent by God to where he wants us to be. Filled with love. With this great good news, this world-changing, tipping upside down, pulling apart and rebuilding message that Paul shares with us in Ephesians. One Lord, one church, we're all called to serve. Thank you, Martin.